Welcome to My Life, Chassidus Applied, episode 206. to everyone. We've just entered the new month, which is Rishon Hulachem Lachot In the lunar cycle, this is the new year. And this is the cycle that uh, Jewish people count to as they are compared to the moon. The first time the moon became significant was exactly then when Hashem, when God spoke to Moshe Rabbeinu in Mitzrayim, in Egypt, exactly two weeks before the great exodus. It says Mitzrayim and said, This month shall be for you the new month, the new year. Chedesh, month, also comes from the word Chedesh. So it's also renewal, as in the renewal of the moon. And compared to the moon, renewal of each of our lives, renewal of our mazel, renewal of our fortune, renewal of our opportunities and possibilities in all possible ways. So may it be a completely new month for everyone, a new year in every possible way. It says in Chassidus that Rosh Hashanah Tishrei is the new year for Teva, for nature. That's when the world was created, the natural cycle. And as he complains, and as cited from Akedis Yitzchok, from the Sefer Akedis Yitzchok, that Nisan is the new year of the miracle, miraculous order, Hanhagen Nisis. And that's the month of Nisan, which comes from the word Nes, miracle. And uh, Nisin Nisim, double miracles, as the Gemara says in Brachas. So what that means in personal life, it means Teva is the natural order when we are behaving and working, functioning according to the patterns and according to the structures of our uh, so-called regular regular lives. Nes comes from the word Arum Nisi. Sometimes Nes is also the word for a flag, a flag that would that would um, be uh, planted on the top of a mountain, Arum Nisi Allah Arim, a flag demonstrating a lifting up of the order to another plane. What it means in our personal lives that beyond the natural order, going beyond yourself, transcendence, both in our efforts and also in the blessings that we receive that are not just blessings commensurate to our uh, usual schedules, but blessings that go beyond the norm, as was Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim, which was going out of the Mitzrayim V'gvulim, going out of the limitations and constraints, the regular limitations and constraints. In that case, the Mitzrayim was also limitations that had the negative implications. But Mitzrayim can also refer to boundaries. That's where the word comes from, boundaries. There's normal boundaries. But there are times we want to go outside of the boundaries. We want to break out of the boundaries, which is really the aspiration of every healthy spirit, a restless spirit that wants to go beyond the structure, go beyond the norm. So this is the new month. This is the new year. And, of course, the beginning with the beginning of the new month of Nisan, which we just entered into today being the second day of Nisan. Which leads us, of course, into the second day of Nisan. There's a special date in the Hasidic calendar. This is the yard site of the 98th yard site of the Rebbe Rashab. 98 years ago, in the year Tafresh Pei, in Rostov. Rostov is the city where the Rebbe Rashab went to after leaving Lubavitch in Tafresh Ayim Vov in, in 1916, or 19, end of 1915. He moved to Rostov, and Rostov would be there for approximately four or five years. And then on Beis Nissen, Tafresh Pei, the Hebrew English year would have been 1920. There was the Stalkus of the Rebbe Rashab, so documented, so movingly and so touchingly, in a very profound way, by Rabbi Rifkin and the famous Sefer Ashkafta the Rebbe, 
I recall reading from it the previous years when I discussed Beis Nissen. Of course, as the Rebbe says, Shemesh, Shemesh, as the sun sets, the sun also rises. That same moment, as the Stalkus of the Rebbe Rashab, was the ascent of the sun, the Rebbe, the Friedrich Rebbe, Mamalamokim is Ben Yochid, the only son in Ben Yochid of the Rebbe Rashab, who became automatically Rebbe right then, as Nashkafta the Rebbe, he documents that transition, how the Friedrich Rebbe was obviously quite reluctant, besides the tragedy and the sadness of the Istalkus, to assume leadership, but because his father told him that he should say, my Mechsidus, so he cites there in Ashkafta the Rebbe, he brings there that the Friedrich Rebbe told Rabbi Rifkin, since my father said I should say, my Mechsidus, I don't want to say it for the public, I have to be, I have to fulfill my father's uh, order and command, so please come in and I'll say the Maimon. And he said the Maimon, Reish is going Mamolik, right after the Shiva of, uh, from Beis Nissen. Reish is going Mamolik was the Maimon, the last Maimon that the Rebbe Rashab said, and it was the first Maimon that Friedrich Rebbe said, and Rabbi Rifkin, of course, told the Chassidim, and he left the door open so more people were able to hear the Maimon. And we have the Maimon today, it's written and published by the Friedrich Rebbe, he wrote it, and it's published, and it has tremendous uh, ideas especially about the Istalkus of a tzaddik and how a tzaddik's, even his physical um, presence and the, the physical room and the physical furniture, he brings all that in the Maimer there, is Nitzchi. And he tells the story that when he was a young child, the Friedrich Rebbe was once hiding in the room and, uh, and, 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 and the Rebbe Rashab went in and was speaking to the Rebbe Marash after the Istalkus just as if it was no change with a kapota, with a gartel, like a yechidus, demonstrating that even the kalim, the clay tashmish, and the desk, and the chair, and the furniture, all retain the gedusha, as the Rebbe would always say, about 770, the 10 years with the shver, the Rebbe the shver, gedavent and gelerent, that was makal yechidus. And we could say even more, with the Rebbe's all the years, the Rebbe. So this is a lesson in Nitzchis of a Rebbe, that ma'alahal neimed the mishamish, afkan neimed the mishamish, just as he served then, he continues to serve, in this case, is the fifth Chabad, the Rebbe, the Rebbe Rashab, the Rambam of Chassidus, which is a fundamental component of Chassidus and the passing on and the, 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 the transmission of Chassidus to our generation is, of course, the Rebbe Rashab, who took together, gathered together all the sugis of Chassidus and channeled them into an organized fashion like the Rambam, which the Friedrich Rebbe further developed and our Rebbe continued to develop. And this is, therefore, the classic Hamsheichim of Tafre Samach Vav, and Tafresh Ayim Beis, Samarvov and Ayim Beis, as they're lovingly known, the two magnum opus, the two fundamental Hemsheikhim, not just by Marim, that they were fun, that they were a dis- series of discourses that laid the basic framework, the most the, the comprehensive framework of all of Chassidus, especially Ayim Beis. I teach now Ayim Beis every morning, and by the way, you can see it online at uh, on YouTube. We have a special Ayim Beis channel. You could also go to Ayim Beis. Um, dot com, slash wikispaces.com for a full uh, um, array of resources around IMBase, which lays out, as I said, gathers together the, the, all the sugis, all the concepts and all the themes of Chassidus Chabad, which of course channel the themes of Kabbalah, which channel all the themes of Primis Atera from Matan Tera till this day. So the Rebbe Rasha plays that critical role, and the second... Uh, not in any order of priority. This one of the second th- second thing that we should mention is the found- founding of the Temchet Mimim, Mimim in Tafresh Nun Zayin, 
which would have been the Tafresh Nun Zayim, which means 1897. He established the yeshiva, which would become the Kola Yetzel Mohammed's Beis David, the yeshiva that would train the Bochrim, the Tmimim, till this day, Temchet Mimim, to be soldiers of the Rebbe, soldiers of God, in going out and spreading Teira and Yiddishkeit and Yifutsa Maynasach Chutza and fighting the spiritual wars that need to be fought each in, its, each in each generation according to those the battles that are required. All obviously battles, Bedarkinem, Bedarkishalm, like the Rebbe Rashab said to the Friedrich Rebbe, that everything should be Bechesle Barachimim, everything should go smoothly and easily. Of course, that, that blessing was very necessary, especially in 1920 when all the Tsarists were just beginning after the Tsar and after the revolution, Russian Revolution and World War I, when the Bolsheviks and the Communists took over, things just got even worse, ultimately leading to the Friedrich Rebbe's arrest. So Beis Nissen is a key day in the life of Chassidus, and therefore in my life Chassidus applied, where the Rebbe Rashab explains so many ideas in Chassidus in this way that we can then use it and apply it to our lives personally in every particular way. I will um, um, talk more about this, of course, in coming weeks. We talk about different topics in Chassidus, and there are a few questions in Chassidus that actually address some, <coughs> excuse me, some of the Rebbe Rashab's themes in Naim Beis and Samovov and other Maimorim. Obviously, the lesson to us all is that on a day like this, it's a day of connecting to the Rebbe Rashab. All the Rabbeim are like one entity. The Rebbe says, a moir, they're one moir, even though each had their own particular style or particular approach, but that was in their manifestation. So it's a day where we connect, as Talkus, as he says in the Geras HaKedish, it's Peyal Yeshua's Bekerav it's all the Aveda of the Tzaddik, of the Rebbe, gathered together and they elevate and they come down and bring tremendous Yeshua's salvations, Bekerav it's even down here to each one of us. To us, of course, it comes through the Rebbe, but it is the Rebbe Rashab's particular kav, as the Rebbe, when he speaks sukkis about the Ushpizen, of course, the day of Ushpizen of the Rebbe Rashab, and many different themes, some of them I just briefly mentioned, and of course, there are many others. So it's a day of connecting to the chassidus of the Rebbe Rashab, learning the, the Maimorim of the Rebbe Rashab, especially when you see so many of the Rebbe's Maimorim are based on the Maimorim of the Rebbe Rashab, the early years, over the years, as they are cited in the footnotes of the particular Maimorim and respective Maimorim. This is also the week we're coming to Shabbos HaGadol next Shabbos and also Shabbos Pasha Tzav. So let's speak a bit about that as well. In the Maimorim of the Rebbe Rashab, as well as based on, of course, the Maimorim that came before him from the Rebbe Marash, the Machsadik Mitla Rebbe and the Alta Rebbe, talks about Shabbos HaGadol in a few places, um, based on what, what the different reasons why this is called Shabbos HaGadol, the Alter Rebbe Shulchan Aruch cites the reason, because on this day, Nez Godel, a great miracle happened. So it's not just a Nez, a Nez Godel. And what was the miracle? Basically, that uh, the Bechirim, when they heard of what's going to be coming, and the threats and so on, they came and they made a civil war, they stood up and fought with Pari and with the Egyptians. Why is this such a great miracle? Because it's a miracle that God takes the Jews out of Egypt is a great miracle, and that he um, strikes the Egyptians. But the Egyptians to turn against each other, that is the greatest miracle of all, because it's the ultimate transformation. The Gemara says, it's cited in Tanya, that uh, asks a question, why is to have the greatest prophecy about Mashiach is said by Ager, 
Avadja. Sefer Avadja talks about the greatest Giluyim, revelations of Mashiach, concluding, So the Gemara asks, why Avadja? There was Yeshaya, there's Yecheskel, Yermio, and many others, Malachi, and so on. And the, the Gemara answers in Sanhedrin, because Meneu Bey Abba Lishde Bey Narga, Avadja came from Moyav. The transformation of the world and transformation is, is not just that there'll be light will conquer darkness, but when you transform from Mayav itself, Aged. So the Moshal is that when you want to cut down a tree, you use the, the tree, the wood from the tree helps cut down the tree. Because an axe has a handle. That handle of the axe is made of the tree. What does that mean in the more, in more uh, uh, psychological and practical terms? that the greatest transformations are the one where you use the enemy itself to fight the enemy. You could use the examples of antibiotics, or even homeopathy, where you take a strain of, of, an, of an infection or bacteria, and when you um, concentrate it, you can build up immunity against that bacteria, which is why when a person, once they could deal with a cold, they build up immunity to it. So you see there's the concept of transformation. It's the ultimate transformation of something from within. If you can take, for example, any type of addiction or you take any type of vice that we deal with, the ultimate is not just that you stop it, but you use what you learn from it for the good. Like he speaks in Tanya about the Tshuva Ma'av in chapter 7. He says the ultimate Tshuva is the one that you use, Zainas Nasli Kazachis, that that which was once a crime becomes now a merit. Not the crime becomes a merit. The crime ceases. And you have to eliminate, annihilate, destroy the negative. But the energy that it's causing you to love even more, because when a person is thirsty, the thirst is even greater. The things you learned from when you were in that situation. Like the Gemara talks about Rashlokish. Another example is that we learn even from a thief. When the things you learn from the mistakes you made. And you can derive from that and turn it into something that's positive, like the Gemara says, the pillows. You could take the pillows that were offered in sin, are now being offered in mitzvah, permissible. That's the ultimate transformation. In context of chassidus applied, it's a tremendous concept when you help people whenever they're dealing with a challenge. It's one thing is to get rid of the challenge. It's another is to tap it and tap its energy and, tr- and channel it and harness it for the good. That's the ultimate form of transformation. And that's Shabbos Hagadol. So it wasn't just enough to strike the Egyptians and saying, forcing them to let the Jews go, but that they themselves would turn on each other. That's the ultimate transformation. <clears throat> it's also Shabbos Pasha Tzav. So one word about Tzav. Tzav is, of course, the Pasha where um, the Hanukkah Samizbeach is uh, this is continuing of the Hanukkah Samishkan, I should say, the dedication of the temple. And this is Hashem telling Moshe Tzav to, to command what should be done on these days that they were dedicating and the different laws about Karbonus and other things that Tzav covers. The word Tzav itself is, even though the word is used many times in the Teda, Tzav comes from the word Tzavsa, Tzav, command. But Chassidus explains, Tzav comes from the word, like mitzvah, from the word connection. So it's more than just a command, it's a connection. And it all connects because the Rebbe in Tavshin Mem Zayin, 
which would be um, uh, now we're in uh, 31 years ago. Tremendous sicha by Yikra, which is the beginning of Chedesh Nisan, the Rebbe spoke about the Nitzchis of Nesim. I spoke about how a Nasi, that's we say now the Nasi, we start with Chedesh Nisan every day, we say the Nasi, about the Nasi from Parsha Nasi of the offerings that each Nasi brought in the temple. And the, and the eternity of these Nesim, which the Rebbe also alludes to, obviously, the Yudal of Nisan comes later in the month, but also Bez Nisan, and he actually cites the Maimon I mentioned before, Reish is going Mamolek. And talks about the nitzchis of a nasi, which means the connection we have to Rebbe, the tzav, the connection to Moshe Rabbeinu of each generation. So even though there are many places in the Torah that says tzav, God commanded, but there's one portion in the Torah that's actually named tzav. So it's very fitting when we're starting the month of Nisan and we're going into Pesach, when we celebrate, of course, Moshe Rabbeinu and the Moshe of each generation, leading each generation out of its every generation has its inhibitions and its fears and its insecurities and its boundaries and limitations. So Tzav, just the name itself, as the Rebbe so often emphasizes, is a lesson in life itself. And the name of a Pasha means the whole Pasha's theme is the con- connection. You could say the name of the chapter is connection. And as we know, when you're tied above, you don't fall below. Connection is the secret to all success. No one can succeed alone. You always have to do the connection to those that became before us, before us, the connection to the Rebbe of the generation, connected to the Moshe Rabbeinu, which, in, which ensures that we have an unwavering commitment that no matter what we go through, we have the connection keeps us honest, keeps us, keep, maintains our integrity. Which of course all comes down to practical lessons that each of us can apply, each one in our own personal life. With that, let us go and let me uh, make a comment now about the essays. We're in the final week of evaluating the essays, so another week and we will have them all finished and we'll make the announcement. So we're excited about that. And now let me go to some questions since I'm talking about a Rebbe. Let's start with that question. To what extent does cleaving to the Rebbe attach one to God? As always, I want to give some cross-referencing. My life, Chassidus, applied to now in the 206th episode, so you can imagine there's 205 episodes before this. They're all archived. You go to MeaningfulLife.com slash MyLife. You find all the archives. You find the forum where you can submit a question anonymously, a comment, and thank you for your questions. They keep coming, and I see that people are really trusting this program, and I really am fla- I'm f- I'm humbled by that, the ability to be able to talk about things that really matter. And again, I want to just assure you that every question will be addressed. It's just that we have many questions, so I can't just address them all in one shot. So please be patient. And uh, I know a lot of questions just came in the last few days. And we keep on going from week to week and trying to continue to address these questions. I also want to mention this program, of course, is a free program for the public. But its ability to make it happen comes from you, your support. So please, any amount of support is deeply appreciated to be able to continue this, the hard work that goes in preparing it and presenting it and the entire team that's involved in it. So go to MeaningfulLife.com sponsorship and make a donation in honor of Nissan in honor of Pesach, and we're happy to dedicate. If you have someone, a loved one, a birthday, an uh, anniversary, or Havdala Yartzeit, in memory of a loved one, We'd be happy to dedicate a program to that 
designated week or respective person and their particular significant date. And thank you for that. Um, Cross-referencing the topics I spoke about so far, Shabbos HaGadol and Parshat Tzav, please go to episodes 111 and 157. And, le- and Lessons from Beis Nissen, episodes 61, 111, 156. And I've talked about the Rebbe Rashab a number of times, which is why I didn't elaborate so much. I'm cross-referencing to also episodes 89 and 91. It's easy to find all the episodes. They're all listed there. You can also search. And everything is time-stamped, which means when you go to a video and you click on the YouTube link, you'll look in the description. The topics are listed with a timestamp, which means click on the time and it'll go straight to that section of the program that you're looking for. So now, as I said, let us go back to the question about Ludov Kabo. To what extent does cleaving to the Rebbe attach one to God? Hi, Rabbi Jacobson. I love your weekly broadcasts. Maybe you could shed some light. The Gemara says, and the Alter Rebbe cites in chapter 2 in Tanya, the Gemara is in Ksubis 111b, Ludov Kabo, it's a posik, and you shall cleave boy, to him. So the Gemara says, As cites it, anyone who cleaves to the Chochem, to a Tamil Chochem, the Torah considers as if he's cleaving Mamish to the Shechina Hashem. It's very reminiscent of the verse, the Mechilta says they believed in Hashem. And Moses is servant, and the Medrash, and the Medrash Mechilta says, someone who doesn't believe in Moshe is as if they don't believe in Hashem. Not exactly, it's a different point, but there's a commonality between these statements. If one, so here's the question this fellow is asking. If one loves the Rebbe, is one having Avas Hashem? And same, and same question with Yira. I once heard someone say that he finds this bindness in the beginning of Pedic Memalv to be more effective when thinking of the Rebbe. There it talks about Vahini Hashem, it's one of the Yudbeis Psukim Amara Chazal, Hini Hashem Nitzva Lava Boichin Kloyez Velev. I'm reading the question as, it's being re- as it was written. So it says, it's easier to think about the Rebbe looking at you than Hashem. I can kind of relate to that. It's much more Muchshiyazdik, which means much more tangible, even after learning Siddhis. My question is that right and correct? Okay, very good question. And I'll just amplify the question and also refer you to that. I have spoken about Rebbe, of course, quite a number of times in this program. It's a theme that comes up again and again. One of the, and sometimes I talk around the Gimel Tamas, sometimes around Yeralf Nissen. Now that we're going to Nissen and we read the Nasi, and I excited the Sikhs that talk about Nasi. That's why I felt it's appropriate for this week. <coughs> so here's the question. In Ba'idin, in Yiddishkeit, in Teira, Hashem Echad, there's one Ebishter. There's no concept of a mumutza. We don't have intermediaries. Every Jew, and for that matter, every human being, has direct access and davens to Hashem and has, that to, and has connection. So what is this whole concept of having a hirzah? And this is not a chesidah shemayim and chazal, gemorah, and ksubas. That the connecting to Atam al-Chochim is like you're cleaving and attaching yourself to Hashem. What does this mean exactly? How do you theologically explain it? Which, of course, applies to the other verse I mentioned, believing in God and believing. Why could you equate belief in a tzaddik? You could say a tzaddik is a very refined person. He should be honored, respected for the tailor he knows. 
for the influence he has. You respect the teacher. But the start equating it to the divine seems can seem a little, uh, I won't say the word heretical, but it could, you're walking on very, very um, uh, delicate area where you start asking yourself, one second, these are all human beings of flesh and blood. And yet, we have these Maimore Chazal, more than one, more than two. And the answer is, because the Abish to the same God that gave us the Torah, then we said, well, let's start. The same God that created the universe with a plan and design and gave us the Torah also chose Sadiqim to send to this world. These are not nominated and elected by people. Shaslan Bechol Dervideir, as the Alter Rebbe brings in Tanya, he planted them. He embedded them in each generation. Why? That question is on God. Why did God do that? Because to help each generation, because we're subjective creatures and we have all our distractions, so to have a Tamad Chachim or a Tzadik or a Moshe Rabbein of a daughter, those are different levels, definitely, but I'm not going to go to the distinctions right now. These are people dedicated to what God wants us to do, so they become role models, they become examples, and they become people who we cleave to them it helps us cleave to the Ebershtah. It's not Chaz Shalom a replacement. It's the exact opposite. They are completely bottled. If they had egos, God forbid, or they had personalities, or their charisma, that's not it. It's the exact opposite. It's their selflessness and their transparency that helps us to become more selfless and more transparent in our commitment and dedication. And that's what the Maimah Chazal means. So to make a very clear distinction, we dive into one God. Can we go to a tzaddik and a rebbe and ask him to intervene? For sure, because he has, just like you go to the kaisal, you go to a shul. Why? God is not everywhere. Because there are environments, and there are people, like the kayin gadol, when he goes in on Yom Kippur and Kedesh Kedoshim. Again, this is all divinely ordained. It's not we chose somebody. As a matter of fact, when Shmuel heard the people want a king, he came to, he didn't want to give it to them. Even though Sumtasim Alech HaMelech, it says in the Pasuk, because as he explains in Derech Mitzvah Mitzvah Minim because he says they don't want a king because the Tate is Mitzvah. They want a king because they want for national, for their pride and nationalistic pride and because others have kings. Hashem tells them, give them a king anyway. But the whole purpose of a king is to be a mamutz, is to be bottle. Not because we're proud, here's a king in all pomp and circumstance and we're proud of it and he has wealth. And he has all the, 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 the things that comes with it, that a king comes with. The exact opposite, a king is malchus, a malchus less than like the moon, has nothing of its own. Because it has nothing of its own, it reflects the divine kingship in this world. So God chooses these people and places them in this world, every generation has its Moshe of a generation, to help us connect to Hashem. Now, can you do it directly? For sure you could do it directly. But, with a Rebbe, with a with a it makes it easier. I'm not going to go now into Neshama Klolis. It's another discussion what Neshama Klolis is as he speaks in Patek Beis and Tanya, taking it to another level. So then to answer your question, if one loves the Rebbe as one having Avas Hashem, I wouldn't quite put it that way. Avas Hashem is a mitzvah. Haftas Hashem alekecha. It doesn't say vahaftas Moshe Rabbeinu. It doesn't say vahaftas Rebbe. However, based on this Maimah Chazal that we talked if a person loves a tzaddik, loves his rebbe, again, not for selfish purposes or for the side shows, but loves the godliness in him, so in essence he is loving something that God put in this world, is loving the godliness of this tzaddik. 
But Vahavtus Hashem Alekech is loving God. So no, loving the Rebbe is not the replacement for loving God. If anything, it helps you love God, just like Avesa Teda. When you love Teda, you're not loving something else, you're loving Hashem's Teda. When you love a Tzaddik, you love a Rebbe, you're loving Hashem's Rebbe. And when you love another Jew, you're loving also Hashem's child, Hashem's creation. It's not about the person, it's about God's presence within that person. So that's how I would... Uh, Regarding Pedic Memal of Antanya, I would be very careful. No. Pedic Memal of Antanya says, In Yashem Nitzavolov. Does it help to know that the, the, Rabbi Yechim ben Zake, does it help to know there's also a human being watching? Of course. Rabbi Yechim ben Zake told the students on his, when he was his istalkus, Halavai, Shi'elechem, that you should have upon you Yiris Shamayim, fear of God, fear of heaven, as you have fear of Yiris Bosavadam, fear of others. So obviously, knowing that you have a mentor, you have a Rebbe, you have a teacher watching you, is going to add to your accountability than just a visible God. But the Tanya is saying, Pedic Memalov, the Ebrishter is watching. Now, if you say the Ebrishter and his Sadiqim are watching, if that helps, I just want to make sure not to replace it because unfortunately, there are some people who distort these ideas and they actually do try to replace, or they don't, they're not distinguishing and they create confusion where there's not necessary confusion. So it's one God who chose different people in this, in, 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 in this world, each generation, to help us see a living role model, an example of Bittl, an example of what it means to be a divine person. And that's how we have to look at it. In Ponim B'Ponim, the Maimer, Rebbe Rashab's Maimer, Tafresh Nun Tes, and I'm specifically focusing on Rebbe Rashab's Chassidus because of Beis Nissen today. So he speaks there about the Mamutza Machaber and Mamutza Mafsik. There's a interface that separates, an interface that connects. For example, a meturgamin, a translator, translating, let's say, someone speaks Hebrew and someone speaks English. Translator, what does he do? He knows both languages. He takes the Hebrew, translates to English. Takes the English, translates to Hebrew. He's a mamutza mafsik. Why? Because first of all, translation may not be exact. Secondly, he's in a third entity. He's not a transparent channel. His, he has to translate as accurate as, as possible. So, but it's called a mamutza mafsik. And there are many examples of an interface that separates but connects. Then there's a mamutza machaber. There's no separation altogether. It's a transparent channel. It's like a complete reflection. It's a transparent channel that connects one thing to the next. Why do you need it? Because Hashem chose Moshe Rabbeinu to convey his message to Pari. Hashem chose Moshe Rabbeinu to convey his message to the Jewish people. He chose Moshe Rabbeinu, Moshe Kibbal Tehidim Messina. Hashem couldn't tell the Aseris Adibus to the Jewish people directly. He couldn't take them out of Egypt alone. But he wanted someone like us. So you have Aisha Lekim, like the Medrash says. Aisha Lekim, Moshe was a godly man. What does a godly man mean? Godly. One God, but there's godliness. There's a Leka, there's a Lekus. If you are completely sublimated and completely, and completely dedicated with Bittl to God then you become an extension, a channel of godliness in this world. And Moshe was that person that Hashem chose, that he should hear the Torah from Hashem and convey it to the people in a selfless Moshe, Ya'onov, the great, most humble man that ever walked on earth. And the same thing with Moshe of each generation. That's the way it's supposed to be understood. I hope that's enough. And with that, let us go to a second part of this question. Oh, before I go to the second part, here's a bunch, a bunch of episodes where this is discussed more at length. Episodes 19 through 23, 41, 52, 
93, 107, 112, 114, 121, 157, and 175, just to name, mention some. Obviously a very uh, popular and very recurrent theme and topic. Part two of this question is, what special powers does the Rebbe have? And here I refer you also to episodes 198 and 199. I'm not sure what you mean by the question, what special powers? Obviously when a person is a godly person, like I was mentioning, Isha Lakim, the Medr says, Lamata, he was like a divine. Lamata, he was human. Obviously this doesn't mean physical, it means that there were two components to him. You say, how could you say such a thing? We say it about every human being. Every one of us created B'Tzalem Malikim. Ve'yikach, Ofrim in Adama, Hashem Malikim, God took earth from the, uh, a clump of earth from the ground. And Ve'yipach Ba'apav Nishmas Chaim, and instilled and blew it into it, imbued it, breathed in it, the Ruach, Ve'yipach Ba'apav Ruach, Ve'yipach Ba'apav Nishmas Chaim. He, instilled in it a nishmas chayim, a life, a living life force. And we say in Tanya Perik Beis, chelik elika mimal mamish. So we all have two parts to us. Again, a divine dimension, this doesn't mean the divine. It doesn't mean the God. It means godliness. So when you speak, for example, Atzilis is elikus. Debisht is elika. God and his godliness, godly energy. Things that are holy become transparent channels to the divine. The same thing with human beings. So, of course, a person in that state probably has special powers. Because first, his ego is not in the way. His physical being is not in the way. So definitely the keiches are the kim, the keiches, the kim. That's why we go to that tzaddik, who has the ability to give a bracha, the ability to pray for us, and open up doors that you can't always open on your own. So that's on a very basic level. I'm not sure what exact powers you're talking about. There's a famous Yechidus in Tav Shenchof, when the college students came to see the Rebbe. It's been published in English, the Rebbe actually edited it, and they asked the Rebbe, Does the, can the Rebbe perform miracles? So the Rebbe explained and said, a miracle is basically going back to the engineering room and rewiring something that God set into motion, wires. Everything in this physical world evolves from the spiritual. So if someone can go to the spiritual and so-called tinker with it, so automatically, it will have a different effect in this natural world. That's what the Rebbe said as a miracle. Then the Rebbe concluded, then the Yechidus, he said, so if I influence you tonight, in this audience, in this meeting now, that each of you should go away doing extra mitzvah, I will have performed a miracle. When the Rebbe edited it, he took out the I, he said, we will have performed a miracle. There's obvious reasons the Rebbe wrote that. But the point is, and from point, looking at it that way, it doesn't even sound so miraculous, right? But that's how simple it is. Because what at the end of the day is a miracle, God set a program in motion. The program, think of a, a computer program. This program rules and governs the universe. Of course, God is running the universe through these rules. The sun rises at a certain time, the sun sets, the seasons, the celestial bodies, the movements of planets, all the demon, everything going through its trajectory. But so there's a program. Let's say someone can go into the, into the machine, into the program itself, and change a few points, a few lines of programming, so it'll have a different effect. That's what the Rebbe basically said. People who have godliness and their lives are dedicated to that, say, Tzadik Gezer, Baruch Not every person. Tzadik decrees, God will fulfill. HaKadosh Baruch Gezer, God decrees, Tzadik Mavatl, Tzadik could 
could abolish, could eliminate. How could you say such a thing? Because God, because these tzaddikim have the power to go into the godly forces in nature and, and tinker with it. This is not done every day, but possible. When uh, my good friend Peter Himmelman, first time he met me, and he always reminds me, when he asked me the question, he says, you speak about the Rebbe, you know, such a great man. He, does he have special powers? You know, like almost cynically said, can he fly? You know, Superman, I guess he was thinking of. So my response to him was, as he reminds me, was I said, I never saw the Rebbe fly. But you have to remember, for the Rebbe, walking on earth is just as miraculous as flying. As the Balsamtiv says, what's the difference between a miracle and a natural event? Frequency. If the sun were to rise once in our lifetimes, everybody would come running up. What a miracle. But since it happens every day, we get used to it. And we need a new novelty, a new rush of excitement. But then the day, as Chacham also says, nature is basically many miracles happening in a perpetual and a continuous motion. So you start seeing it as a pattern. But it's not a pattern. Every one of them is a miracle. Every time we breathe, is it a miracle or is it natural? You start wondering, what's the difference between nature and miracle? Maybe nature is just a bunch of miracles happening on an ongoing basis. So, that, so when you think of it that way, a Rebbe special powers. But a Rebbe is most importantly as an example of what God wants a human being to be on this earth. An example for us, an example to teach us, an example to help us fulfill our mission. We have so many distractions. Even with a Rebbe, the Nisayinists are great. But a Rebbe, is, a God sent a messenger to this world to tell us what our mission in this world is. That's, let me sum it up with that. Okay. Next question. Next question is, why are we holding on to chumras which don't seem to be part of the original Teda? Hi, Rabbi. I'm a great admirer of your program and I have some deep questions which I hope you can resolve. Lately, as I'm learning and in general thinking about my Judaism, I'm having issues dealing with halacha, law, Jewish law. It seems to me that the modern-day application of Torah law is light years away from the Judaism of old. I have a hard time understanding why we hold on to old chumras. Chumras are, are, are stringencies or the... Um, uh, what else would I try? Yeah, that's a good way of saying Chumra means there's a mitzvah, you do it, this is how you do it regularly. A Chumra would be doing it with extra measure, with more care, with more caution. Chumra literally means with more chumra, with more, chumra, with more stringency. So he's saying, I have a hard time understanding why we hold on to old chumras which were disproven. Like not eating milk and fish because it was mistakenly written as, a, as opposed allowing cheese, even though we now know better. There's a laundry list of things that we still hold on to, even though we all know that it has no practical relevance to us, like Natili Sidaim for bread and Cholavakum. A very bothersome issue is Chattas Nu'urim, the release of uh, seed for no reason, Zeralavatala. There's no source for it in the Teda, and the only Asmachta, Asmachta is an expression from the Gemara, means that it's not necessarily a law, it means it's a, a uh, theory or a consideration or a uh, Havamina. The only asmacht is a story dealing with someone who purposefully went against Hashem by not making a woman pregnant. 
The closest lesson for these days that I can draw from this story is that we shouldn't use birth control. But as we know, many, many people get to Tatum to use it. They get, they get permission to use it. So why can't there be a heter for single men to have a release instead of the natural harmful consequences when you can't get a healthy release and all that comes with the baggage that we're told of all the damage that's done? Also, Rashi explained on the mitzvah of taking a captive woman from war that it was set up because Hashem won't give, won't, won't give a mitzvah which no one can keep, live up to. Does anyone think that there are a significant amount of Baruchim who get married after 18 that can be nichshel in this sin, this Aveda? I believe that Tate is 100% emes, but I feel like it was hijacked perhaps at times for well-meaning reasons, like to be firmer than other religions, which, was, which has happened in our nation's history. So what's the true emeskite of Tera? Is it sticking to every old chumr that a man with a white beard created? Or is it applying true Tera values to our everyday life in a meaningful way as opposed to our robotic one, two, three, shmon, esra way? Like if halacha would be developed today, what would be considered work? Driving to shul on Shabbos or walking two and a half hours on a taluch? Okay, I read it exactly uncensored. And I apologize if anyone's offended by any of the lines, but... I felt it may be uh, some little risque, but still, someone on someone's mind, I'm sure on other people's mind. Reading it does not mean I agree with everything that was said. Let me make that clear. But this questions, the whole point of this, my life, is taking questions. So let me address this question to the best of my ability. Um, firstly, I want to go back to what I said before about tzaddikim. People ask me often the question, skeptics, you know, it's one thing, the written Torah, we understand the written Torah. We accept that. But the oral Torah, oral Torah came from the rabbis, human beings, maybe better than us, but still human beings. As one person once said to me, imagine when you play the game telephone, you whisper in someone's ear a word, water. He whispers to someone else, someone else, another. by the time it gets back to you, in the same room, where everybody sees each other, and it'll probably be a completely different word. So how can we know that the oral tradition, which is oral, passed on thousands of years, Different people, people we don't even know. It's exactly the way it was passed on, the way it was in its original. Written Torah, okay, the written Torah, you could say it was written. This is how it was written. Every Sefer Torah was written from a previous Sefer Torah. Very good question, right? So I, my response always is, I'm not going to prove to you, Teresh. I said, how do you know Teresh Sav is right? But no, no, Teresh Sav, the written Torah. I said, what, you remember? You remember God giving the written Torah to Moses? You believe. Yes, I believe. How do you know? Many people have questions about that. And not, my goal is not to undermine the person's faith. And my goal is to make a point. She says, okay, maybe you're right. Maybe not for sure. I said, how do you know there's a God? No, God for sure exists. How do you know? So we have proofs. My point I want to make is, I want to demonstrate like this. If one believes and accepts that this universe, with all its intricate an amazing, mind-blowing design was created by a designer, by an engineer called God, with a purpose. If we say that even about a, a simple human, a simple abode, a building, if we say it about a machine, if we say it about a piece of technology, no one just went to build a piece of technology. There was a purpose why we have smartphones and why we have automobiles and why we have airplanes, why we have buildings, and why we have every piece of object, anything that was ever man-made has a purpose. The engineer, the creator, the architect, the author, the composer has a purpose. So 
accepting that the universe, which is far more complex and far more designed and far more organized than any of the above, than any book ever written, any music ever composed, any art ever drawn, every, any building ever built, so it has design and purpose. So the question is, what is the purpose? Would it make sense that God would create a universe with design and purpose and not tell human beings which are such, who are such an integral component in this universe, what the purpose is. Human beings he created with intelligence, with free will, with the ability to make choices, with the ability to destroy, God forbid, or to build. Wouldn't he tell them what those, what, how they should live their lives to the best? So it's all in a logical sequence. You accept a God and a world of design. Design implies a plan. A plan implies a mandate, an operator's manual. You buy a computer, you buy a phone, it comes with an operator's manual. So it's, that is necessary component because to create something with design and not telling the people who are, or the components that are part of the design how to fulfill that design and purpose is, doesn't make any sense. Now, if you look at Tehidah Shabiksav, there's no way that from Tehidah Shabiksav alone, we don't have the operator's manual. It's not complete. There's almost no mitzvah you can figure out from the written Torah. So that compels us to say that the written Torah and the words of the Rambam, Hashem never told Meshe, the engineer, never gave the operator man just a post. He explained to him, In other words, the verses came with an interpretation or with the tools how to interpret. The Yud Gimel Midrash, Without that, the operator's manual is not complete. Without an operator's manual, the design doesn't make sense. And, and the world is clearly designed. So it all leads. If there's a God with plan and design, you have to have an operator's manual that's also clear and we can use. If it's an operator's manual, that, that's uh, cryptic and nobody can understand. This would mean also, and this goes back to the idea of Moshe Rabbeinu and Rebbe, that he also gave us people who are selfless and would not mix their agenda in to help, to help us teach us this operator's manual. They will be our teachers. They will convey the words and they will not let their ego get in the way. So not like in the game of telephone. There, who cares? Here are people who their whole lives are dedicated that every word of God is repeated exactly as they heard it. Generation after generation. Could there be people who distort it? Yes, that's why there's a Hilchus Mamrim in the Rambam and other Svarim that talk about what's the reality check, so to speak, to know whether a minig, whether our interpretation in Tereshvah is accurate. So you have to have consensus. There's a whole system of checks and balances. So when we hear today, it's not just the rabbis came up with something. It's gr- firmly grounded in and could have been even given in Sinai, or at least the interpretations of how it's learned. And there's rules to the, the process. Even the things that you, so to speak, are dismissive of, you say Cholavakum or others, you look in Svarim, yes, it could have began with a technical reason, but there's also deeper spiritual reasons for many of these customs or the, or the Rabbonon and so on. There's a lot of things in the Chumash itself you could say, you know what, the Chumash is not re- relevant today because, like you speak about Shabbos itself, Shabbos says Lamates Malachas. But Lamates Malachas is not just whether you turn on a switch, someone says, I understand lighting a fire is a Malacha. What's the big thing turning on a switch? So let me ask you something. The Rebbe once writes in a letter to somebody, and for God, creating the world is like turning on a switch. The only reason we don't do work is because God doesn't do work on Shabbos, meaning the work of creation. For God, creation was even less effort than turning on a switch. It's not about the effort. 
It's about the creation of something. It doesn't matter whether you just, if you press a button, if you create something, if you carry inside your house, even heavy load, it's not like creating something. For all the reasons given, and all the different explanations, what's considered a malach and not. It's not the place to go into right now. Especially when you learn Primis Ateir you realize that mitzvah is not just for the technical reason. There's always a deeper reason. There's also always an element of a divine command in it. And deeper reasons that we don't always understand. So meaning to someone to just go ahead and say, you know what? Here's a system that's thousands of years old and, is, and has, yes, evolved according to the rules based on the Yud Gimel Midas, which is the 13 methodologies by which we interpret it. But when Arav today interprets it and paskins a certain way, it becomes part of the canon. Of course, there's levels of what's considered precedent over other. Obviously, a, a Mishnah is stronger than a Gemara. A Chreinim is weak, a Rishenim is stronger than a Chreinim. And all the different guidelines for the many different reasons. But they all have an element of authority. Dvar Hashem zu I'm not going to go now into the whole structure of Teda works and how it works. So if it's a Chumna that doesn't have any basis doesn't have bases that maybe it should never have been. Maybe somebody just thought of a chumrah that came out of their, uh, from their pupik, pardon, is obviously not a chumrah. But if it's a chumrah based on the laws of Teda and based on Rabbonim and people who have the authority to interpret Teda, why were chumras made? Because there have been laxity in certain areas. That's a lot of the Rabbonim. What did they do? Instead of you having a situation where you are going to be confronted with a challenge, just let's avoid the challenge in the first place. So many of the Rabbonans that come from that. So you'll say, one second, why can't you just trust people? Because that's part of the process of Teda. Take an example today, Hilchus Yichud, which was always seen as primitive. A man and woman should not be alone together, they're not married to each other. Nothing, nothing doing nothing. What, you can't trust people? Look today with the whole Me Too movement. People are starting to respect something which everyone always thought was some archaic thing. It's like, you know, primitive, childish, immature. Because the wisdom of the Chachom is the wisdom of Teda. Now, so that's, that's why it says, Hadvik Bebel Tamad Chachim the Lashon that I quoted before. It's like, Shalkola Dovik Tamad Chachim. My Lord of Mamish. The Tamad Chachim is not coming with his own ideas. He's taking the Teda principles and applying it to each generation, each generation has its challenges. And who knows that? A true selfless, selfless. Now if you'll tell me a rov is not a rov, he doesn't have Yerushamayim, or he's a person who's just coming out with kinds of things for reasons. So when you say, dantuni, you ask where the sources are, you go to another rov, and you get a consensus. There is checks and balances. Not every chumrah just goes, just because somebody wants to make a chumrah. And there are chumras that were only a period of time, and then afterwards you don't do it. That itself has guidelines, what remains, what doesn't remain. Again, I can't go into every detail here, but I will say the following. That yes, there are chumras that people just assume upon themselves and other areas of their lives, they're completely not, they're completely lax. And that can be quite, sometimes quite, dis, quite uh, pathetic. Some people, they choose on certain chumras. They can have another chumras that comes to basic things like obviously Israel. No, the chumras, the famous story with the Fidik Rebbe by the Seder, with, a, with somebody, a guest, put the matzah into the borscht, which, of course, uh, you're talking about on Pesach. And behold, there was a whole uh, commotion going on there. Fidik Rebbe asked Shmuel Vitten, what's going on? So he said, I eat, the, I eat put the matzah in the borscht. 
Friedrich Rebbe said, Besser, areta matzah v'areta ponim. Better a red matzah than a red face. Many people are matzah and burst. They go crazy. That doesn't mean the chumra doesn't exist, but you have to also have context. There's a Jew here sitting there. He doesn't know better. You embarrass him because of your chumras. So that's already a whole other distortion where people use chumra. The chumra is still valid, but you have to know when, what, and how, and how do you say something to somebody. Chumra is never meant to be at the expense of insulting someone or hurting somebody. Obviously, Israel is a mitzvah daraisa, klal gadol b'teira. So this is context already. This is already common sense and a little Yiddish shemaim. So to use chumras just to use them like a stick and an abusive way, you'll know my position on that and I've talked about it many times. But to dismiss chumras because it's been used by some people that way, yeah, those people, uh, they need to get what they need to get. But the chumras, we shouldn't throw out the baby in the bathwater because there are many times these chumras are actually gifts given to us. Because when you care about somebody, this is how the Alter Rebbe explains it in Lakuta Teda, when you care about someone and you love them deeply, what do you do? You take extra care. Like you tell your child, here, I'm going to put on an extra sweater today because it's cold outside. Is that a chumrah or it's love? I'm going to send someone to walk with you down the street because I don't want you to walk alone. Is that a chumrah or love? So love can take on the shape. We live in a world where you sometimes say, you know what, to be extra careful. Think of it that way. It takes on a whole different shape and form. And when it's coming in a loving way like that, you can appreciate it differently. The Alter Rebbe says this in Lukut So you see, there's a whole different dimension to it. But still, I don't want to dismiss the fact that some people distort and abuse Chumrah. Some people, Bechlal, focus on one thing, the wrong things. They make a tofla ikir and ikir a tofl. That comes from either ignorance or from people's insecurities and their own distortions. And not criticizing. Some people, it's out of ignorance. They don't know better. You know, Pesach is coming. Pesach is, of course, the holiday of Chumras. And actually, we spoke about Chumras uh, back on, in uh, episode 13, just for the record. So Pesach. But Pesach says Chumras then, it's one of the times that the Teda is lax and says, if people have more Chumras, do it. But then there's times that the Gemara says, It's enough what the Teda forbade you to do. You don't have to add new things. That's why a Nazir who takes a vow not to drink wine, not cut his hair, and so on, it's not always considered a purely positive thing. It has a kedusha to it, because he took upon himself. Because the Ebershah says, Nadarim, don't vow. Don't do more. Don't be more religious than me. So that also has to be put into the whole pot. But I also don't want to make a, get the wrong impression that a chumrah doesn't have value. And also you have to know, feed the person. Some people, they are basic things they're not doing, and they suddenly have a chumrah. You have to know, is that, is that, is that appropriate? And you have things from the Rebbe, where the Rebbe sometimes says, do the Chumrah anyway, even though you're not holding by it. And sometimes not. There was a time when you didn't really wash twice. It was considered Mechzik It was considered arrogant if you washed three times, because that was a thing of Minig Beis Arav. It was only special people with Yiddish Shemaim. But then the Rebbeim said, you know, the time has come to wash three times. So you have to also know the time, the person, and sometimes absolutely dismiss. The Chumrah is not for you. First do the basics before you start adding on new stringencies. So I'm trying to be thorough about the subject, and I think I covered it from the different appropriate angles. With that, let us go to some follow-up, especially left time for follow-up, because there's been a number of follow-up. We'll start with absentee parent in episode two, last week's episode. So I spoke a lot about a woman who wrote about her father, her husband, who's basically disappeared on his children. So I've got a number of comments, and one of them was one. 
What to tell children about a mother who creates an absentee father? Okay, there we spoke about what to tell children about a father who is responsible. If a mother creates an absentee father, that's of course a circumstance, and that's why I mentioned last week, you have to know all the details in every story. <laughs> a mother who creates an absentee father is a tragedy. She's depriving her children, either for, for uh, her own vengeance, to take away children from their father. Now, if there's a very good reason to danger or other things, is one thing. And that's why we have Rabbanim, and that's why you have Mashpim, and you have to make sure. A mother deprives her children from a parent, from a father, or a father of Faket who deprives children from a mother, you're hurting the children for what? For your own vendetta. If anyone's listening, I hope they understand my, my point. And make sure, I know people think they're smarter than everybody and they understand why it's not good for the child to be exposed to a mother or a father. But the fact of the matter, children need both parents. If for whatever reason, God forbid, the parents can't be together, do not deprive the child from the other parents. Again, the circumstances where there's danger, abuse, or something that the children, obviously protecting the children comes number one. But any mother or father, the first thing you have to care about is not your interest, but your children's interest. Number two, someone wrote, we can also tell children about a father who creates an absentee mother. I have known women who've abandoned their marriages and families for various reasons, some valid some frivol- and some frivolous. Please do not imply that is the fault of the wife, mother, if the husband, father walks out on the relationship and children. My husband's father abandoned his wife and four children and it was very painful for the entire family. So I wasn't implying anything. Uh, I'm not sure whether you're writing to me or you're writing to the other person. Okay, it doesn't really matter. It's true, all these situations are tragic. I don't like to read them all together. But unfortunately, they need to be read because there are realities. So we don't have to make the damage worse. The best possible thing, obviously, is to reconcile and try to maintain a relationship, if nothing else, for the children. And get over your own issues and try to transcend them. If whatever God forbid reason that can't happen, but never, don't, you don't want to continue the damage. The bleeding has to stop. You don't want it to carry over to your children. They want, you want them to marry and have healthy marriages. And I say this from my heart, a plea to everyone listening. And I know people listening, because I know from the questions I get, and I know some of the people listening, this is absolutely irrelevant to you or someone you know. Children are our most precious commodity, treasures, innocent, defenseless, vulnerable, fragile. We have to do everything possible to protect our children and give them the best possible fighting chance, the nurturing, the confidence, to be able to build their lives. If something didn't work out in your life, God forbid, why would you want to deprive your children and not give them a better option? So I say this again to anyone in these type of circumstances. Then there was a follow-up about bariatric surgery. Um, Let me read this. I did the surgery. I got a strong bracha from Rabbi David Abu Chatzera and from the Igris to go ahead with the surgery. Indeed, it was very, the very last resort. I have struggled with my weight for over 10 years and I've been taking many medications. None worked. Today, that it, today, it's six months since. I feel amazing and my doctors told me that I've just gained 40 years of my life. I think people should consult with several doctors, but it should be only for medical health and not... Due to cosmetically looking good. Another, another person wrote. I think you have, may have done some disservice to some of your listeners who struggle with morbid obesity. I would hope that in the future, if you are answering anything medical, that you should not only converse with rabbonim but perhaps also speak with from physicians who deal with this. Even before reading on, 
I'm not sure what you're listening to this program. I'm extremely careful to say both, especially when it comes to health issues. No, Rabbanim are not enough. Doctors are given permission. Arav is regarding halachic aspects to it. So I'm not sure where you got that impression. Absolutely talk to doctors and talk to Rabbanim as well. And I don't rule not on medical issues and not on halachic issues. I want to make that disclaimer right clearly here. I try to share things from the Rebbe, directives, always making the disclaimer that you have to go and speak to someone. It's case by case. There are medical circumstances, emergencies and other things. And by all means, but that doesn't take away from the Rebbe's notes. And you have to take everything into account and understand the nuances. And it's a big picture, even before continuing to read on. Without going into minutia, the writer continues, and referring you to any articles, weight loss surgeries are not plastic surgeries. They have many long-term health benefits. Plastic surgeries such as liposuction or abdominoplasties do not. Weight loss surgeries of all kinds are not experimental. Granted, they are not without risk. However, neither is obesity. Obesity, With current risk-benefit ratio, it is surprising that more people are not doing them. Insurance companies pay for them wholeheartedly, and those who need it not because these surgeries are cheap, but because they have saved themselves on future costs associated with caring for patients with morbid obesity burden. For example, some of these procedures are associated with reversal of diabetes. There are strict criteria applied to who can have them. One of the criteria is required psychological testing. Occasionally, patients slip through this one. Depending on the type of weight loss surgery, patient must follow a strict diet, and those with food addictions can literally rupture new stomach along suitor lines because they cannot control themselves. This may be the issue that your viewer may have referred to as, they rel- as, their, relative likely, or, as their relative likely overeats and therefore vomits as the volume of stomach is less than the volume of ingested food. Google image BMI and risk of death to convince yourself that remaining fat for anyone with BMI over 40 is not a good idea. And for your own appreciation, Google BMI calculator and plug in your own data to see that there are many people whom you know who are too large for an issue of drawing significant conclusions, conclusions, conclusions from the Rebbe's answers of 35 years vintage, medicine is changing fast and has changed tremendously in 30 plus years. It was probably a good thing the Rebbe did not go to the hospital during Simchus Teter for a heart attack as the treatment they used then is considered very harmful now. To do so now would be a crime and a severe Aveda. I can go on, but I hope I made it clear. Well, I read your note, but with all due respect, there are many angles to this. And when a Rebbe says something, he's quite wise. He knows that people are going to listen to it. And they will read it 35 years from now. They may read it 350 years from now. So though you may consider yourself an authority, but who says you're an authority? So I want to just say, with all respect, the good points you've made, I think it has to be looked at from all angles. And that's why I read what you wrote. But I want to make it very clear. Not everything you wrote is the Ten Commandments either. And it's true, you have to weigh everything as far as as far as risk versus benefits. And the surgery, with all respect as well, is still there are many controversial things about it. It's not so black and white as if, okay, you're obese, here's a, a, an option and go for it. You mentioned testing. There's many other factors and no one yet knows long-term consequences. Not to mention that, I think, is also irresponsible from your end. So if you're going to dish it out, I hope you can take it as well. And, um, and with that said, it is nuanced and has to be addressed from many different angles. Okay. We'll do one more follow-up. I wanted to do more, but you know everything has its time limits. So we'll do, are the Bavichers who live in Crown Heights second-class citizens? 
This goes back to episode 204. I spoke then about um, whether well, the Rebbe wants people to live in Crown Heights. This is back in 204, so we're now following up. Rabbi Jacobson, you spoke last night about this. And last night, I mean two weeks ago. You gave to understand if Alabavich does not go on Shlichus, he's not a good chassid, he is second class. Well, second. Before I continue reading, absolutely not. There's no such thing as second class in the eyes of God, in the eyes of the Rebbe. Everybody is God's ch- ch- child. So where you got such impression, I would like you to see, go back. I use the word second class, never. I would never use such, and I wouldn't even use not a good chassid. I said, if you ask the Rebbe, what's his first option for every person on earth, why did your neshama come down to this world? To make money, to be comfortable, to eat? It came down to spread your futzamayin and to bring Mashiach. You don't need me to say that. And hundreds, starting from the first Maimer, Boslegani, hundreds of sikhs. That's what the Rebbe, so if you want to know honestly what the Rebbe wants of us, he said, if a person chooses not to do that for whatever reason, God bless them. But let's not deny what the Rebbe said. Does that make them second class? No. Maybe they have good reason. Whatever it is. As I said, God bless them and the Rebbe will bench them. And they're benched. But before I even read on, but we have to know what does the Rebbe say and what he wants. Just like someone will say, you know, even a person who doesn't follow what it says in Tehra is also not second class. But you have to know what's expected and what's not expected. Now can I continue? Now I'll continue. How can anyone think that this is the Rebbe's shita? Well, you just heard what I had to say. How could anyone think that the Rebbe is going to make one of his chassidim feel second class? Yes, absolutely, as I just said. I'm, I, I'm taking the exception and commenting on every line because I find it so outrageous that you should even suggest that I said that. I just don't want anyone to even think that way. I agree. The Rebbe spoke about the importance of going on shlichus. Exactly. But the Rebbe has also spoken many times about the importance of chizik ha like you said last night. The shkuna where the Friedrich Rebbe lived the last 10 years of his life, Baal Medein, the shkuna where the, where the Rebbe, which the Rebbe has been living in since Chov Chesiv and Tov Shin Aleph, why would anyone in their right mind think that one is more important than the other? Well, the Rebbe said so. He told people, I want you to go on shlichus. I don't want you to live in Crown Heights. So to make your own conclusion, especially if it's based on your comfort zone, is not what the Rebbe said. That's the difference. Now, people who live here, it's a beautiful shkuna. But there are many times the Rebbe said to people not to live here. Lafka. The Rebbe's war was that people shouldn't leave here because of fear. The Rebbe wanted the shkuna not to fall apart because people are running away. But it's a very big difference. If a person has a choice where to live, maybe they have to make other calculations. And remember again, shlichus is the number one calling and mission in this world, period. I wouldn't even equate the two. I live in Crown Heights, but I'm never going to equate and say that was the chathila what the Rebbe said. Go on shlichus. You could do shlichus in Crown Heights, do it that way. Anyway, my comments on your, on your comments. Why would anyone in the right mind think that one is more important than the other? This is simply the work of the Frumer Yetzirah. Or may I suggest, maybe it's the Frumi Yetzirah or somebody that didn't, that didn't go on Shlichus and they should have, and they convinced themselves living in Crown Heights is holy enough. They're supporting the kosher stores here and Kan Tzivus Hashem To make a chassid feel depressed in second class, I'm continuing to read with my Pirush Rashi and each line here. Where would Lubavitch be today if all Lubavitches moved out of Crown Heights for whatever reason? Well, as the Rebbe once said to someone, my response, the Rebbe said, I don't mind if someone said, I want to stay in Christ to be a minion for the Rebbe. I don't mind there's no minion. Where would it be? I'm not worried about the Rebbe. But remember, 
going on shlichus is different than running away because the price is, I'm sorry, because because uh, you don't like the neighbors or because you're afraid or because there's a scare that the prices are going to drop so much that you're not going to make your money. That was the concerns back in the 60s, as I elaborated on. What would be where, what would be with the Kinnus Ashluchim? Kinnus Ashluchim, Sitin Shabbos, Shabbos Chidon, etc., etc., etc. We are all the Rebbe's Chassidim, we are all the Rebbe's children, we all have a job to do. The last thing that any father wants is that one child should feel he's better than the other child. Anyway, I think I made my point and comment, and um, I understand where you're coming from on a personal note, and I'm not here to criticize you, but we do have a Rebbe that laid the guidelines, and it's not you or I or anyone else that determines this. So I would say to you as follows, that the Rebbe's first choice for everybody was to go and be a shliach somewhere and, and being, not spend time in their own community, even in Crown Heights. If you ask the Rebbe, prefer to stay in Crown Heights or go on shlichus, you tell me, what do you think the Rebbe would answer? Are there exceptions? There are a few. But not the rule. The rule was always. He never said, no, you, we need more people here in Crown Heights. Stay here. That was a very rare exception, and even those exceptions, many of them, people use them as if the Rebbe told them, it's not necessarily correct. We know the few exceptions, I'm not going to mention who they are, but there are the few, but most was not that way. So the Rebbe said that. That doesn't make a person who stays in Quran as a second-class citizen, that's my point. But just know what the Rebbe wants. Okay, with that, let's go to the Chassidus question. And it is like this, a king. King is a very important word in Judaism. Yes, Melech. Talk about every Melech, Melech. Talk about the Ebishter is a Melech, Malchem, Lochem, Akadish Baruch Hu. Refer to him king, not just on Rosh Hashanah. <clears throat> every Bracha we make, Baruch Atah Hashem, Lekein, Melech, Elam, etc. So king is a very important word in Judaism. In Judaism. We refer to God as the Melech, Malchem, Lochem. A king is used as a moshel, an, an example to understand deep concepts in Chassidus. Correct. And in Medrash, I should add as well. In our generation, a king in Gashmis is almost non-existent. And in history, a king was usually a corrupt dictator. How are we to understand the praise of Melech, Malchem, Lochem and the comparisons from a king to the Chassidus concepts? Or phrased another way, how do we apply the Hasidic example of a king in our modern age when we no longer have monarchs? So there's a famous story when the Tsar was overthrown in the early 20th century in Russia. It says Chassid cried, or Chassidim cried, saying, we lost a Moshel in Chassidus. Because the Tsar was a Melech, complete, absolute power, and we lost a Moshel. Now the Tsar was no lover of Jews. He was a good anti-Semite and caused Jews a lot of tzaddas. But his absolute, but we, we, we learn from everyone, even from a Melech Tzeder, a Yehudim. Even someone who's a hater of Jews and caused a lot of damage. But the fact is, everything's a moshal. It's a moshal of absolute power, the total authority that we have the Kabbalah say, Lahavdil. Now remember, Lev Blochem Mesorim B'Yad Hashem, every king appointed, even if it's a bad king, is in the hands of God. And it is an example for Melech Basav Adam. For... So when the Tsar fell, Chassidim cried, they lost a, lost a, 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 um, a moshal. Some say with Putin, the moshal came back depending how you look at President Putin. The point I want to make is that it doesn't matter whether it's a good king or a bad king. Pari was a bad king, but he was a king. There were kings that were benevolent. Shleim HaMelech, Dovin HaMelech, and there were kings that were not. But a king is a marshal of Malchus 
and actually nishtalshul from Malchus, that's I said, connected to Malchus. Now, a pure king is someone who has total bitl. There were kings that were corrupt, as you correctly say. But still there, you learn the lesson of this total authority that Kabbalah says, a king says something, you have to listen. Like a commander-in-chief. Today is true, we don't really have kings like that. First of all, it's frowned upon. George Washington clearly did not want to be king because of the abuses of the King George in England. The king in England today, or the queen, are, not, are just really more uh, figureheads, don't really have that authority. People, people like the monarchy. So you don't really have that type of authority except maybe some dictators. So there are different ways you can explain it. I've never seen directly an explanation. Some say that as we get closer to Mashiach, and it'll be Melech HaMashiach, will be the real king. So the kings of old, we don't no longer need them. We will have the real king that will lead our way and lead us. Others say the idea of a Rebbe. A Rebbe is also a Melech, like a commander-in-chief. A Rebbe says something, you follow marching orders, not whether you understand or not. And the Rebbe brings in many letters, a marshal of armies, as a marshal from armies, Kabbalah sailed the idea of listening. So, however we explain why kings don't exist today, the concept is still there. The concept is that it's not just someone you just listen to if you like, and you don't listen if you don't like. Man malka rabonon. Sometimes rabonon, a rov is called a melech. Man malka. Why? Because he has that authority. Halach has that authority. Again, it's not about the king, it's about the power of Tata that's coming through him. So, it's true we don't have the muscle in the fullest sense of the word. And today, as I said, we even dismiss it because there's a certain individuality that we have. And there isn't that type of absolute authority, thank God, because we have a country like the United States and other countries that have the, the freedoms that we could have that a king we may not have comfort upon us. So therefore, um, but it has other malas as the Rebbe speaks about this malchus shal chesed. Malchus shal chesed. And that is the idea of human rights, freedom of religion, the freedoms that once upon a time kings did not necessarily uh, allow people to have. That's the negative side. But the positive side is the Melech Basav Adam, the Molim Mashalim, the Maha Dover Dame of the Medjur says. What does it compare to a king who sent someone or a king who did this? Because it's a Mashal in this world for Malchus of Elikus, Malchus of Atzillus, Malchus of Ainsof, and so on. With that, let us conclude with My Life Chassidus Applied episode 206. Every Sunday, we will be here next Sunday, a special Yud Aleph Nissen and Pesach episode program. We'll also most likely announce the winners of the contest, but keep based in, of course, we're waiting for the results. And everyone should have a blessed Chedesh Nissen, Benissen Nigalu, Benissen Asidun Nigal, Chedesh Agula. We should have the Gula Amitiz Vashlem even before Pesach. So then, Menechel Shamin Azvachim in Absachim in Eretz Yisrael in Yerushalayim with the base Amigdash Ashlishi. Be well.